Welcome to El Petróleo es Nuestro, Episode 9, Slouching Toward Reform. I'm Brandon Steele. In the previous episode, Pemex's production peaked at 3.4 million barrels per day and 6 BCF a day of natural gas around 2005, yet the writing was on the wall. Pemex was overleveraged, overtaxed, and a political hostage to its own union. The first attempts at reform to the energy industry in Mexico began under Carlos Salinas in 1993. Yet even in the general spirit of deregulation and privatization of that era, the neoliberals had to tread lightly around Mexico's hydrocarbons. The 1993 foreign investment law opened up Mexico's economy to limited foreign investment in various industries, including the airlines, cable TV, banking, and railroads, to name a few. Yet on the very first page of the law, the first explicitly excluded industry from foreign participation was, you guessed it, petroleum and anything related to hydrocarbons. Yet in 1995, President Zedillo was able to force through the first constitutional amendment, opening up parts of the oil and gas business to any degree. In addition to opening up secondary petrochemical production to foreign investment, it also opened up the storage, transport, distribution, and marketing of natural gas, in theory. With respect to natural gas transportation, the amendment was not particularly successful. Prior to 2012, and not counting projects that were bid out by Pemex itself, I can count only two meaningful private pipelines that were built during this period. Because in a perverse way, the little 1995 reform probably made the pipeline situation in Mexico worse. It became an excuse for Pemex not to invest in infrastructure. They could point to the opening and say that private industry was free to invest. Yet Pemex remained the 800-pound gorilla in any given market, and every project had to interconnect with it at some point. This meant that if they didn't like a project, or simply if they planned to do it later, they could kill it by doing nothing. The result was that Pemex's pipeline system would only grow about 19% between 1995 and 2013 to reach the still meager total of some 24,462 miles of total pipeline by 2014, about one-tenth the pipeline mileage in Texas, not counting distribution lines. 2003, however, saw the first real attempts to open up the upstream market to foreign investment. Recall that risk contracts had been widely used in the early years of Pemex to attract foreign risk-takers and their technologies. These had been forbidden by law, however, since 1960. Yet a new financing mechanism that had been created in the 1990s called Pidiregas suggested a path forward. Pidiregas is an abbreviated term for Proyectos de Inversión Diferida en el Registro del Gasto. In short, under the Pidiregas model, the Mexican government could use private capital for public works projects by paying the developers a capped return on their investment, so long as that return was paid solely out of the proceeds of that project. Furthermore, such projects were operated by the private contractor, who could often realize significant savings because he didn't have the same union labor requirements of government-operated projects. And as a last perk, any surplus cash flows created by Pidiregas projects were not subject to the same appropriations rules as traditional projects, ironically offering bureaucrats more control over their project cash flows than internal projects. By 2002, almost 80% of Pemex's infrastructure projects were being undertaken using the Pidiregas structure, so it's no surprise that they began to look at ways to employ it on upstream projects as well. In 2003, Pemex announced the first EMP contracts open to foreign investment in Mexico in almost half a century, the so-called multiple service contracts, direct descendants of the Pidiregas model. Under these multiple service contracts, ENP contractors would competitively bid on a catalog of oilfield works. For example, for a pipeline of X inches in diameter, they would invoice Y dollars per foot. 
For a well-drilled and cased X meters, they would invoice Y dollars. For a compression station installed with X horsepower, they would invoice Y dollars. Pemex would still have the ultimate say over the work program, and the contracts would be limited to non-associated natural gas fields, i.e. no sacred oil production. And to make sure that the contractors were making good geologic and operational decisions, their invoices would be payable only out of production generated by the works that they completed. Though challenged at many levels by opponents, the contract model was eventually upheld by the Mexican Supreme Court, and the contracts went forward. In late 2003 and early 2004, five blocks were successfully tendered in the northeastern Burgos Basin, whose natural gas reserves offered far less exciting returns than Pemex's southeastern oil plays and whose proximity to the prolific South Texas oil fields proved that substantial resources remained to be produced. The first block, called Mission, was won by a consortium between the Argentinian Techint and Mexican driller IPC. The Reynosa-Monterey block was won by Repsol. The names Techint and Repsol should be familiar to listeners from a previous episode, when Pemex formed Mexpetrol to invest in projects outside of Mexico, namely with Techint and Repsol the latter of which Pemex owned about 9% of at one time. Two other blocks, the Cuervito and Fronterizo blocks, were won by a consortium formed by Petrobras and Mexican LDC operator and oilfield services provider Grupo Diavaz. And the last block, the Olmos block, located northwest of Nuevo Laredo, was won by a little South Texas operator named Lewis Energy, with a 21-year-old hand named Brandon Seal in their employ. Me. Every narrator loves the chance to insert himself into his story. Lewis operated about 600 wells right across the border from the almost block, so it was a natural extension of their, well, our, existing operations. The multiple service contract results were mixed at best, even as a few more would be successfully tendered out over the next three years. Probably only the Mission and the later Nejo blocks were the only two to ever make money for Pemex, or for their operators for that matter. Because at the end of the day, the Pidiregas contract model was a really poor fit for the exploration business. It offered all of the upside of a fixed-price construction contract, that is, none, with all of the risk of the exploration business, that is, a lot. And because of the complexities of the multiple service contracts, operation quickly became an exercise more in working the contract itself, not in good oilfield decision-making. Exploration wells could be paid out based on 72-hour production tests, regardless of their long-term results which simply incentivized open-choke production tests. Oil discoveries, meanwhile, which are normally a good thing in this business, had to be shut in immediately because they weren't allowed by law at the time to be operated by foreign contractors. Further, landowners could effectively block operations on their property if they were unwilling to accept the statutorily prescribed payments for the use of their land. That is, operators were limited by law in how much they could pay landowners, who, unfortunately, were under no obligation to accept that money. Such statutory payouts and limits worked well when Pemex was the one knocking on the door because they had the power of expropriation behind them. But these provisions were far less persuasive when a private contractor showed up. But as a legal experiment, the multiple service contracts were successful, both for the precedents they established and the shortcomings they exposed. To the first point, they helped briefly increase production in the Burgos Basin from less than 1 BCF a day to 1.5 BCF a day by 2010. This was a byproduct of Pemex being freed up to focus on its higher-value projects, but also a demonstration of the value of bringing in foreign operators with new technologies. For example, at Lewis, we drilled the first multilateral well ever drilled in Mexico in 2006, the Hidalgo 501, a technology with profound potential for Pemex. And in 2010, we drilled the first unconventional well in Mexico, the Emergente Uno in the Eagleford, 
approving the extension of that prolific play into Mexico. Yet the multiple service contracts also demonstrated that convoluted public works-style contracts were counterproductive. Pemex still had to administer and oversee the contracts, thus layering on much of the administrative burden that they had hoped to eliminate. And many of the contracts ended up deeply unprofitable for both Pemex and the contractor, again, because of the failure to really align the contracts with the fundamental maximum of success in the oil field, to take more money out of the ground than you put into it. Indeed, the 1960 law prohibiting risk-sharing contracts directly forbade paying contractors based on their performance. To that extent, the 2003 contracts were instructive. To that extent, the 2003 multiple service contracts were instructive for the 2008 Reformita, or Little Reform, when it came around. The 2008 energy reform was pushed through by PAN President Felipe Calderón, a former energy secretary under Vicente Fox. Without the support of the PRI party, however, he couldn't hope to realize the constitutional changes required to truly open up the Mexican oil industry, so his reform remained more limited in scope. Its primary achievements were, one, strengthening oversight of Pemex by the appointment of independent board members and by imposing increased transparency requirements on the organization. Two, by creating an independent body, the Comisión Nacional de Hidrocarburos, or the CNH, to separate out the regulatory role that Pemex had historically fulfilled as the only player in the industry in the country. And three, by allowing for the concept of citizens' bonds, which were approved to allow Mexican citizens to invest in, or more accurately, to lend to Pemex. Though these bonds never really came to fruition, they were the first real proposal to allow for private co-investment with or in Pemex. The 2008 reform also revoked the 1960 law prohibiting risk contracts, which allowed Pemex over the next two years to promulgate two new service contract models. The first, laboratorios, were ill-conceived from the outset, however. They were basically turnkey operations contracts, intended to outsource the development and operation of fields that Pemex didn't have the resources to exploit. In the end, they were assigned out exclusively to the big service companies, Schlumberger, Halliburton, Weatherford, with one exception to the Argentinians at Techint. But these were eventually withdrawn before they ever went in a real effect. The second contract structure, allowed by the new 2008 reform, was the Contrato Integral. Under these contracts, blocks were bid out to the contractor who offered to develop the fields for the lowest dollar per barrel payment. More specifically, a bidder would propose a minimum work program of which 75% of their cost recovery was guaranteed, and the remaining 25%, plus any profit margin, came out of production paid at their dollar-per-barrel fee. Again, the service companies dominated these contract tenders and quickly figured out how to game the system. They were, after all, the ones providing the services that constituted the cost recovery basis. In some blocks, the service companies bid less than a dollar a barrel, trusting that they would make their money on the guaranteed 75% cost recovery piece alone. Only a dozen or so of these blocks were bid out, again, to disappointing results and stories of contractors performing nonsensical works simply to get the 75% cost recovery piece. Mexico was discovering how cynical dollars really are, especially in the oil field. For almost a decade, they tried to reform their oil industry via convoluted contracts that, by law, couldn't align the contractor's incentives with those of the country, namely getting hydrocarbons out of the ground and to market in the most efficient manner possible. In truth, this was probably deliberate. What Mexico really wanted was more capital to deploy within Pemex, and for Pemex to be able to prioritize its operations. No one in the Mexican government really wanted to risk opening the oil industry because of its outsized role in funding the government itself. In 2008, Pemex contributed $20 billion to the national treasury, 37% of its total revenues. 
But despite the sudden frantic increase in investment and exploration from a negligent $500 million a year in the 1990s to $20 billion a year in 2008, 2009, and 2010, two decades of underinvestment was beginning to show. In 2006, the great supergiant field Cantarel was acknowledged to be in permanent decline, having peaked at 2.1 million barrels per day, second only to Saudi Arabia's Gawar field worldwide. Natural gas production peaked the same year at 6 BCF a day and would begin a steady 5-10% to decline that has yet to be arrested. The development of Mexico's sleeping giant Chicontepec field began in 2006 to great fanfare and promises of reaching production levels of 700,000 barrels per day by 2015. Yet the first 300 wells and $10 billion in investment later yielded a meager 39,000 barrels per day. Listeners to this podcast will recall that that's only about a tenth of the great Cerro Azul No. 4 Gushers initial production rate from only one well, a well not terribly far away from Chicontipec's field. By 2013, Chicontipec was effectively abandoned. Pemex then turned her hopes offshore with the purchase of the deepwater Plataforma Bicentenario in 2008. Pemex's enormous shallow water offshore fields had made her complacent toward developing her deepwater resources. In a decade when supermajors and companies like Petrobras were drilling in 10,000 feet of water, Pemex had yet to venture deeper than a few thousand feet. Pemex has made a few tentative steps into the deep water, yet these wells are enormously risky and expensive operations, with single wells costing $100 million to $200 million apiece. And the only great deep water discovery that Pemex can boast of to date is the rather unsurprising extension of Shell's Perdido field, located offshore from Brownsville, Texas, in 2012. By the end of 2012, Pemex's proven reserves were down to 14 billion barrels from 65 billion barrels in 1990. Its reserve to production ratio was down to 15 years, from 59 years a generation before. And yet, Pemex's E&P division remained spectacularly profitable. It threw off $20 billion in profit in 2008. Its aging refineries, however, operated at nearly equally spectacular losses. Refining capacity in Mexico had remained virtually flat since the 1980s at around 1.8 million barrels per day. And Mexico's six refineries, the same number it had had in 1938, had begun to look paltry compared to the United States' 145. In 2008, President Calderón announced plans to construct a seventh refinery next to the existing refinery in Tula, but this plan would be scrapped by 2014. As recently as 2016's announcement of a planned $12 billion of investment in refinery improvements, Pemex continues to flirt with plans for large refinery expansions. But it's hard for them to justify when so much low-hanging fruit remains on the E&P side of the business and the most efficient refining complex in the world, namely Texas's Gulf Coast, sits only a three-day barge trip away. Suffice it to say, all around, Pemex fell into a bad way between 2008 and 2013. Then, in January of 2013, Pemex blew up. Literally. At 3.45 p.m., an explosion ripped through the underground parking garage of the Pemex headquarters tower in Mexico City, destroying the bottom floors of building B2 and killing 37 people, injuring many dozens more. According to official accounts, a gas leak had built up and was ignited by an electrical spark. But coinciding as it did with the peak in drug violence and the changing of personnel associated with a new Mexican president, Rumors swirled, and it remains a topic that most in Pemex are uncomfortable talking about. The explosion in the Pemex Tower was sadly symbolic of the challenges that Pemex faced. 
She was being attacked and sucked dry from all sides, from service companies and from well-connected groups working at above-market rates, from unions whose benefit packages and membership roles never seemed to shrink in response to global financial realities, and from its very own government, who consistently ensured that taxes and subsidies left Pemex with virtually no money for growth, and by criminal elements who tapped its pipelines and threatened the very safety of its employees. I'll never forget the day that I walked into the Northern Region Asset Manager's office in Reynosa, and he showed me on a map a dozen or so highlighted tank batteries that were not currently under his control. He showed me his daily activity report, which, instead of beginning with production volumes or rig updates, began with kidnappings. I'm a petroleum engineer, he told me. I'm not trained for this. Yet for all of the horror stories we hear about Pemex and about Mexico's oil field, I want to make a point to highlight some of the successes that Pemex had in the last decade. By 2010, Mexico's production decline had stabilized at around 2.6 million barrels per day, thanks to increased exploration budgets and the success at increasing production in the KMZ field nearby to Cantarel. These increased exploration budgets took impressive political will by the Mexican Congress, though perhaps even they too could see that if they didn't leave the money in, there wouldn't be anything left to take out a few years down the road. And back in 2008, the Mexican Energy Secretary, Jordi Herrera, had made a decision to hedge almost 100% of Mexico's production for the next year at a price tag of almost $1.8 billion, but at a price tag of $100 per barrel. When the markets collapsed at the end of 2008, oil commentator Daniel Jurgen named Jordi Herrera the most successful oil manager of 2008. The move made Pemex almost $8 billion and might legitimately have staved off bankruptcy for Pemex, for a while anyway. But by 2008 and by 2010, reform couldn't wait any longer. In the next episode, Pemex's financial troubles will make energy reform a necessity, and it will fall to the party of Cardenas to roll out these reforms while attempting to preserve the unique character of the Mexican oil industry amidst the national mood of growing skepticism toward deregulation, particularly of Mexico's sacred hydrocarbons. Thank you for listening. Please go on iTunes and subscribe, rate, or even better, leave a comment. We have two episodes left, and I'm working toward my conclusions now. I'd really appreciate people's thoughts on where we've come so far and how we should tie this up. For this episode's suggested reading, I'm recommending my own book. Why have a podcast if you can't engage in a little shameless self-promotion? It's called The Eagleford, a partly factual and occasionally true memoir from the oil fields of South Texas and northern Mexico. It's a collection of short stories and sketches from my 13 years running around this funny little oil patch, And I think it's a unique window into operating in Mexico prior to the energy reform. It's available on Amazon. It's the first thing that comes up when you search for Eagleford. Hasta la próxima.